Um, okay, I think we'll start. That's okay. Um, firstly, thank you all for being here tonight. You're all very courageous <coughs> for coming out. Um, and we very much appreciate it. Um, so, thank you all. Um, it's a real honour and a real pleasure to be moderating um, this event. Um, Rabbi Cardoza and Rabbi Greenberg are both inspirations for me personally, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, and I'm excited for all of you to share their thought, to hear their thought, and to see how important their thinking is for today. I also would like to thank Rabbi Nit Malkabina, who's not in the country at the moment, um, and Chaya, for helping us um, and really spearheading this event. So thank you both very, very much. Um, and we'll begin the evening. I've noticed um, through my teaching and through people I meet on a day-to-day -day basis that many people are searching for some kind of religious authenticity that seems to elude us. There's no doubt that Judaism today stands at a crossroads. Sorry, just recording. Um, we're living in unprecedented times. Never before have we had a modern democratic state in which the majority of Jews live. Never before have we lived between the generation of absolute destruction and an unassailed redemption. Never before has humanity advanced scientifically, technologically, theologically, and geographically in such a short period. It's hard in this world of unprecedented acceleration to find a place for religion and a home for ancient tradition. And as a result, religion, especially here in Israel, I think, has become increasingly polarized. The biggest question that faces us today is what is our future? How can we still lead an authentically religious life while simultaneously embracing the rapidly growing and changing environment, both on a practical level, but also on a deeply theological level. Does modern orthodoxy have a future? And if so, should or can halacha still play a central role in that future? These are just some of the questions <coughs> I hear on a weekly basis, and also I hope that our speakers will address tonight. I'd now like to introduce our speakers, though I'm sure for many of you, they need no real introduction. Stephen Katz catches Rabbi Greenberg, or Rav Yitz, as his Talmudin call him, best when he wrote in 1993, no Jewish thinker has had a greater impact on the American Jewish community in the last two decades than Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. Two decades on from then, from then, al-echad kamavakama. How much more so? Rabbi Greenberg is an internationally renowned scholar, renowned scholar of post-Holocaust thought and Jewish-Christian relations. He's the president and founder of Klal, founding president of the Steinhardt Foundation, as well as being a pioneer in Holocaust education, including service as the executive, uh, executive director of the President's Commission on the Holocaust, which conceived and later supervised the creation of the, of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. He's also the author of numerous books and is currently finishing The Triumph of Life, A Narrative Theology of Judaism, which will amalgamate his life theology and teachings. And we're waiting for that very excitedly. 
From a personal perspective, Rav Yitz's thought is the subject of my current doctoral thesis. His thought and outlook informs much of my own worldview. Anyone who has met or spoken with or learned under Rav Yitz knows that he doesn't just preach a theory, but rather embodies everything he, he embodies everything he believes. The idea of Tselem Elohim, of a deep humanity and an authentically lived Judaism, shines from his face and emanates in his actions. There's only one word that truly encapsulates Rav Yitz, a pure mensch. I am humbled to know and study his thinking, and I hope tonight you'll share in my enthusiasm. Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardoza is without doubt a household name amongst most English-speaking modern Orthodox Jews in Israel and abroad. His ideas are discussed, debated, dissected in many different forums. His ability to arouse us from our slumber is indeed legendary. Rabbi Cardoza's ideas are radical, brilliant, and controversial. But precisely because of this, they make us think, they disturb our complacency. And that is, by his own admission, one of his primary aims. Rabbi Cardoza himself has needed much courage and audacity to criticize even the community from which he comes. Taking the words of Rabbi Greenberg used to describe Rabbi Cardoza, he is a prophetic voice in contemporary Judaism. His challenging of accepted norms and ideas have been articulated in many articles, and I think now more than 13 books, right? Because this was, yeah, probably 15 books, 16 books. Um, many of which are going to be on sale or are on sale later this evening. And I've been asked to tell you that the authors are very happy to sign copies of the books um, at the end of this evening. Um, he's the founder, Rabbi Cardoza is the founder of the David Cardoza Academy in Jerusalem and heads a think tank focused on finding new halachic and philosophical approaches to dealing with the crisis of religion and identity amongst Jews and the Jewish state of Israel. I have been reading and teaching Rabbi Cardoza's thoughts for many years, and as Derrida, a very well-known philosopher, says, I never speak of what I do not admire. One can only criticize someone if you are a great admirer of and follower of that person. Hence, following Derrida, I, a few years ago, sent an email to Rabbi Cardoza when he wrote an article on Rav Soloveitchik. I did not think I would get a reply, but indeed I did. And the dialogue that ensued <coughs> to me showed, which became public and ultimately is actually printed at the back of his book, Halakha's Rebellion, but to me it showed how seriously Rabbi Cardoza takes his readers and how ready and willing he is to come up against criticism and open debate. I thank him sincerely for myself and I know many others for bringing to light much needed discussion on fundamental issues in Judaism today. And now enough of me speaking, let's go to the main subjects of the evening. And that is the questions and the ensuing conversation that we will have between these two thinkers. So I've divided the evening into five main questions. I hope we'll be able to get through them, but I'm definitely going to open the floor up to questions at the end as well. Um, and I'm beginning with a question on status quo or revolution. And what do I mean by that? There's no doubt, having read both Rabbi Cardoza and Rabbi Greenberg's work, 
that both of them represent radical and novel trends in modern orthodoxy. Both their theological positions, however, do differ one from the other. And if I can cursely summarise their positions, I'd say, and again, this is a, a summary that they may agree or not agree with, that Rabbi Cardoza understands halacha and Judaism to be a religion whose raison d'etre is a rebellion against the status quo that works in an evolutionary way, a kind of awakening of our inner being to become radically engaged and attached to the divine. And in Rabbi in Rav Yitz, we see a deep humanism that's predicated on the supreme value of Selim Elohim. The idea that each person is created with infinite value and unique, etc. The Torah and Halakha at times had to acquiesce to the non-ideal nature of humanity and society. And our role, or the role of Halakha, so to speak, is to move us from the real to the ideal. So in some senses, for Rav Yitz, Judaism is seen as an evolutionary process that has revolutionary designs. So I'd say one of you is more revolutionary and one of you is more evolutionary. Do you think that these are fair appraisals of both your ideas and philosophies? And how do you think Judaism today needs to move forward towards a more revolutionary stance or to more, towards a more evolutionary stance? Um, we'll begin, I think, with... We'll let the revolutionary go first. <laughs> we'll let the revolutionary... <laughs> I hope this will be enough. I don't think that I so much disagree or that Raf Yitz disagrees with me about the way how we see the future of the Jewish tradition. We just come from a different kisha. Raf Yitz is indeed very much emphasizing the concept of Tzelem el Kim, man being created in the image of God, which I basically agree with. But indeed it is true, like Tanya just said, that I see this only possible to happen when we see the Jewish tradition as a call um, to arms, as a protest movement, as a rebellion. And that's the reason why I called my book Jewish Law as a Rebellion. What I mean to say by that is that indeed we today live in an enormous amount of contentment and pleasing ourselves and I speak first of all about the religious community, I another time will speak about the non-religious community if there is anything like that, which I doubt by the way, but uh, I believe that the very fact that we are living an easy orthodox Jewish life is not at all what it is all about because in that way we are not getting at all to the concept of Tzelem Elohim on the highest levels. I'm also an evolutionary in the same way I think as Rev Hitz is but I emphasize the part of rebellion. I do that for two reasons. First of all because I really believe that the Jewish tradition is a rebellion and tradition which calls uh, to arms but and a protest movement but also because the language today 
where our young people find themselves is a language of rebellion. And we need to speak in the language of the days in which we live. The moment you are telling somebody, listen, the Jewish tradition is a rebellion, people wake up. They say, hey, wait a moment, to be rebellious, I like. So tell me what is there so rebellious about it? And that is what I try to do in the way how I write, which no doubt gets me into trouble with the establishment, with the orthodox establishment, perhaps even less with the conservative establishment, to be quite honest, because it is obviously very hard, and I understand that fully, that people don't want to get disturbed by the way in which they live their religious life. And my point is that the whole meaning and the purpose of the Jewish tradition is to disturb, <laughs> not to, to allow you to live in contentment and to live your religious life like you did yesterday, because then it is no longer authentic to the extent that it needs to be, and it is able to speak to our young people. So by calling on to arms, I think I do something very, very important. And I could go back to the Hasidic tradition, for example, the Kotzke Rebbe, one of the great Hasidic thinkers by far, who constantly said to be religious is to be in war. And I believe that to be true. Does that make the Jewish tradition easier? No. But who says that it needs to make things easier? The point is to wake us up, to make sure that we are living a life which every day is new, of rebellion, of amazement, the very fact that we live, that we live here in the state of Israel, which is an amazing experience and is a complete miracle in my uh, eyes. That is what ultimately can lead to a higher understanding and a deeper understanding of the Jewish tradition. And by that, and here I come very close to the philosophy of Ravitz, we are able to develop the concept of Tselem Elohim more carefully, deeper, because Tselem Elohim means moving things. Meaning, meaning that there are evolutionary aspects to the development of man, his spiritual condition, his religious condition, and Elohim or Tselem Elohim is not a status quo. It is a call to be a Tselem Elohim. And so I see, and I suppose Repitz also sees, this as the ultimate goal of halacha, of Jewish law, and living a Jewish life. I remember that the very controversial Louis Jacobs, I suppose that some of you know who he was, one of the most outstanding but revolutionary minds in England, once, uh, and I should read this to you, wrote this very well when he said something like this. He said that we have to realize that to live that kind of a life we have to change our attitude to what religion is all about. Until now, what we basically have done is that religion is there to comfort people, to make them to feel well. Louis Jacob said correctly, the time has come that religion 
starts to see itself as the very great mover of being uncomfortable, of not being able and not being prepared to live in that contentment because ultimately it will move people away, it will make people to walk out, to go off the dirk, whatever that means, and start to become sleepy, basically living in a dream, everything is fine, leave me alone, I make my kiddush Friday, Friday night and Shabbat morning I go to shul. But my dear friends, this is not at all the purpose of it. If you really look into all what the halakha has to say about this, and perhaps this is not reflected in the Shulchan Aruch, which is a whole issue and a problem on its own, and also not in the Mishneh Torah of the Rambam of Maimonides, the fact is that if you go back to the Gemara, you go back to the oral tradition, there you see clearly that Chazal, the rabbis, had in mind to make this into a revolution. And what happened in our years, for all sorts of sociological reasons I shall not go into now, is that it slowly started to fall asleep. <coughs> and I can tell you one thing from my experience as a teacher, and that is that the moment things fall asleep, the moment people walk out. It goes hand in hand. And then you start to lose lots of people who you could have inspired, you could have made the rebellious, and you could have made uncomfortable and being disturbed. And then to say, well, you know, there is a mission to the Jewish tradition. The mission is not just to comfort ourselves. The mission is not just to live for ourselves as Jews. We Jews are much too much busy with ourselves in my uh, point of view. We have to be busy with the world and we have to be an example. We are the Amhanifhar, we are the chosen people. All these matters are not today any longer or very little discussed in the, let's say, basic mainstream orthodox world. And then you start to lose out on the people to be inspired and ultimately it will lose its very impact on our society. So yes, to me also that Selim is of the greatest importance because it is the ultimate goal. But I would say, different from Ravitz, the way how to do that is to make people rebellious because that's what they want to hear. And above all that, above that it also happens to be true about that very Jewish tradition. And if we do that, then I think there is a future to the Jewish tradition. If we don't do that and we make it mainstream, no doubt, Chasva Shalom, it will not come to an end, but it will lose more and more people. And especially in this society, which you just, uh, Tanya, mentioned, in the Israeli world, which has drastically changed the whole of Jewish life, not only in Israel, but also outside Israel, if we know, don't make drastic changes in the halakha, but in according to the spirit of the halakha, which is the spirit of Tzirum Elohim, we will not be able to hold on to the Jewish tradition in the state of Israel in the way which we would like it to be. And if the Jewish tradition, or better, the Jewish state, starts to become more secular, I hate that word, but I use it for a moment, we are in deep trouble to the point, forgive me for saying so, that it could undermine the very existence of the Jewish state. And that worries me.
tremendously. <clears throat> I don't care so much about what happened in the elections. What, what I care about is how Jewish is the state of Israel going to stay. But that Judaism cannot be the Yahadut of our grandparents for the last 2000 years. It will have to be resold all over again. I still believe that the Jewish tradition stands in its baby shoes and it still has to grow up and it will have to reject quite a few things. But all that can be done even from an orthodox Jewish perspective. But then you have to be, have to have very short, very strong, let's say, ideas about this, which I try to convey in one way or the other, and on top of that, show that this really is what the Jewish tradition is teaching when you go to the real sources, which I think are a call to arms. Thank you. allow myself one um, personal comment before I answer the question, which is, I've been an admirer of Rabbi Cardozo it's really since the 1960s when I first came across his writing and his teaching. And if you know him and if you met him, he's one of the kindest, nicest, gentlest, fine people I've ever met. And there's so many people so angry at him. I, I, I never, I, I, used to, I said, couldn't be, what are you so mad about? You disagree. I realize now, how would you feel if you're having a sleep, you're, you're calm, you're peaceful, you're feeling good, in the middle of the night comes this guy, he screams at you and he wakes you up in the middle of the night. I'd be furious. So I understand now why they're so angry. They're, you're disturbing their sleep, okay. Now, the comment of the question, revolution or evolution? I'm just finishing this book, as, um, as uh, Tanya referred to it, in which I basically argue that Judaism, that's what's the most interesting thing about it, is on the one hand, it's really revolutionary, it's really utopian. That's the, we have a utopian religion. What's more, unlike, as Rabbi Kodoza pointed out, unlike in this country, where basically the religious people are really you know, interested and deeply involved in the trivia of <laughs> the society and have almost nothing to say about the major concerns or issues. The Torah starts with creation because the Torah really presents itself as a world religion. It's really, Rory Salvation points out, it, it starts in creation because it doesn't, it's not even a religion of Jewish people. It's really religion meant to say what's the whole world going to be like or should be like. In any event, here you have a revolutionary utopian religion. The basic kites of behind it is that this world, it's tikkun olam, that this world will be transformed. That's what messianism is about. It claims that this earth, this planet, will be turned into a paradise, into a Gan Eden. And when you, you define a paradise, you're talking about overcoming poverty, you're talking about overcoming hunger and deprivation. That's what the Nevi'im claim, that before we're done, we will, we will cure hunger, we will overcome poverty, and we will uh, overcome war, right? They'll beat their swords into plowshares. We'll overcome oppression. According to Yeshayahu, when, when Mashiach comes, everybody will be equal before the law. Can you believe that? Even the prime minister, I mean, even the whatever it is. You know, everybody will be equal before the law. Uh, for that matter, according to Hosea, that means that women will be equal to men and that they will describe their husband not as their Baal, their owner, but as their Ish, as their man, as their 
partner, be that as it may. So you, according to the Nevi'im, we will overcome sickness. He was talking about cor coronavirus, right? right? Remember, you heard it here first. Before we're done, we will cure not only coronavirus, but every other sickness. And the ultimate dream of Yeshayahu and the Nevi'im really is we, we, our religion predicts and bases its truth on the claim that humanity, with God as our partner, will in fact overcome death itself. If you believe that, I have a bridge to sell you, but it's, you know something? I do believe that. And we are selling these bridges. Anyway, the, the point I'm trying to make is, so here you have a utopian religion connected to Zilamalukim, in that world, everybody will be treated like a tselemalikim, meaning tselemalikim means that every human being is entitled, this is my argument, according to the Mishnah, is entitled to the dignities of being treated as if they're infinitely valuable. No amount of money is too much to spend to save their life, or to take care of their life, or to develop them. They're equal. Every tselemalikim is equal to every other tselemalikim and every human being is unique. Now, here's the point of the revolution. The religion claims, now, right now, it's a joke. There's poverty, there's hunger, there's sickness, there's inequality, there's oppression, even in our own tradition. But, before we're done, that's what the Judaism claims, we will overcome all this. Together with Hashem, we'll overcome all of this and make the world, in fact, into a paradise. Now. That's the revolutionary side. But the, to me, the most remarkable thing, it took, me, it took me quite a few years to come up with the first understanding, but the second understanding took another 30 years because I didn't get it. It claims that we're going to achieve this revolutionary utopian outcome by a conservative, small c, by a conservative, gradual, incremental partnership approach, evolutionary, sometimes not even evolutionary fast enough for the need of the problem. It's this combination of the two that I think makes it so powerful and so important, and I'll tell you simply why. Because for the last 200 years, all of humanity, not just the Jewish people, has been driven by this vision, has a chance to make the world perfect, has a chance to overcome evil, overcome war. Over... That's been the driving force of modern civilization for 250 years now. And of course, you know what happened. In the dream and out of the commitment to transform and perfect the world, you've had the most oppressive, destructive, murderous, genocidal movements of all time, right? That's the point. It took me some time to realize the greatness of our tradition is that it's calling for the same revolutionary transformation, but unlike the others, covenant breathed the step-by-step -step is based on respect to human beings and treating them as equals, treating them as partners, even the <coughs> opponents, how to be treated like partners. It means that you compromise, you don't go for the perfect today, you do the best you can, and if you don't compromise and make room for the other side, you're gonna end up in a kind of a vicious, oppressive structure, which is what happened in Russia or in Germany. So it's this combination, I would argue, and again, the, the secret behind this, I'm gonna give, let me give you a concrete example, a very simple one. Tzalmalakim means that every human being is entitled to infinite value, equality, that means freedom. That means slavery is an outrage, it's totally incompatible with Tzalmalakim. 
But when the Torah was given, slavery was universally practiced. So when the Torah, it didn't abolish slavery. It didn't say you were going to go all out and kill it right now because if we don't kill it right now, you know what happened in America. If we don't abolish it right now, you'll end up in a civil war and in a lot of other things. The Torah didn't say that. The Torah said abolish slavery one step at a time. And the first step was for Hebrew slaves, not even for Canaanite slaves. For Hebrew slaves, you limit it to six years. And during the six years on Shabbat, once a week, they're free. They're free people. Step by step, Torah Shabbat Peh continues. You have to give them equal food, equal hours, equal treatment, equal dress, equal respect, equal dignity. So over thousands of years, step by step, the halacha moves from sl accepting slavery to putting it out of business. Or the obvious example, because it's unfinished, and I'll finish with that. How about women? According to the Torah, we are all created in God's image, and that means infinitely valuable, equal, and unique. But it says specifically in that Pasuk, Zachar Unikeva Abraham, that men and women are both Tselem Elohim. But in fact, in the Jewish tradition, and even to this moment, the very important parts of the community can't, will not accept that or argue that this is a deviation from the history. Women are a second class citizens, never more obviously in those sectors of our community which are the most fundamentalist and the most traditional. So the answer is, I'm not going to apologize for this, my answer is the Torah said women are fully equal and someday they will be, but one step at a time. When the Torah was given in Tziat Mitzrayim 1250, roughly, right, women were chattels, they were bought and sold. How does the Torah go about changing that? It doesn't make them equal overnight. In fact, what it does is it restricts. It starts by saying, from now on, look at it, it's right after Har Sinai, it's the first parsha right after Yitro, right? Mishpata. It starts by saying, from now on, only a father can sell his daughter. And when a father sells his daughter, he can only sell her to a man who will marry her. Can't sell her as a commercial product anymore. And when he marries her, he has to treat her as an equal woman bought, not as a bought bride, but as someone who is an equal woman, uh, equally a free woman taken in marriage. Again, if we stop right there, I wouldn't be particularly proud of defending this position, but that's the genius of, of covenant halacha, step by step. The first step is that kind of example. What's the second step? I can go on and on, obviously. <laughs> when she's a free woman, she gets married. Chazal did not say, well, that's good enough. That's what the Torah said. They added a ketubah, guaranteeing not only her rights and her rights in marriage, but protection against divorce in terms of minimum elemental financial guarantee that she will not be left poverty stricken, and so on and so forth. And the truth is that it's unfinished. Until 100 years ago, overwhelmingly, our community did not admit that women are entitled to learn Torah on the level and can learn Torah at the level of men. That's a minor accomplishment, but it's a major accomplishment of our time. It's unprecedented Judaism. So all I'm saying is, again, I'm not quarreling. I'm proud of the religion and all its limitations. The key, of course, is the combination of never losing sight of the vision of utopia and perfection, never losing sight of the full dignity of Tzalem of not just of Jews and non-Jews, 
but at the same time, one step at a time, improving their condition. And again, we were Zoha in our generation. There have been major one steps for women, long overdue. We're just at the brink of first steps for gay and LGBT people. We're just at the first steps of, I could go on and on, how about whether women are entitled to be religious leaders or religious um, um, major figures. It's very controversial now, the idea that women could be rabbis. Um, my wife, uh, Lou Greenberg, published an article in 1983 going through all the issues in the rabbinate and halachic obstacles, and she concluded at the end that there really is no halachic obstacle to women being rabbis. It's a matter of sociology and community. And so in the last paragraph, she wrote, and therefore I predicted in my lifetime, in our lifetime, there will be women rabbis. Well, of course, she handed me the article to read before she sent it into the publisher. When I got to the last chapter, I was so excited. I jumped up, I ran up the stairs, I hugged her, I kissed her. I said, you don't know what you wrote in this chapter? She said, what? I said, you wrote, we're going to live forever. <laughs> well, of course, I, I apologize for that. I was wrong. We're not going to live forever. We're not going to live forever. And in fact, it's happening in our lifetime. And that's the point I want to make, that the revolution is coming, and of course it all depends on waking up and taking responsibility. The revolution is coming, having said that, on the other hand, the basic truth is that it's unfinished, it's highly controversial, our community does not have the right theory of halakha, and we'll get to that later in the evening, to understand that the halakha is not deviating, it's not reforming, what it's doing is trying to move toward its goals, a goal that was started thousands of years ago but won't be finished till we reach perfection, or at least as close as we can get. Thank you. Thank you both very much. I think you've given us both, a t all of us rather, a taster into both of your, the basis of both of your thinking, um, which will hopefully develop as we go on. I do want to move to halakha because I think it's a very important area, but before we get to the halakhic question, which we're going to get to, I want to address before that, something that I think I've named moder modernity and post-modernity. Um, and I think actually this time of year more than ever, because I really see Megillah Esther as the post-modern book for today. It really is a book in which we see Nietzsche's prediction of the death of God, right? As in, God doesn't feature, he's not named. It's a book of total void. It's a book of real nothingness. It's a void, it's a chasm. It's kind of falling into the abyss and asking the question, how can we come out of there? And I think today more than ever, when we're in, a po we're in an age of postmodern, not even modernity anymore, but postmodern relativism, um, where there's really no authority at all. Okay, if before we had this, the problem of biblical criticism, which I think still is an issue today, or authority, to now is really the question of what do we do in a world where there is no authority, where there is absolute relativism? How does one address the youth of today? How can we live in this world of nothingness, so to speak, of total vol? Um, obviously, this, this kind of abyss that we've fallen into, or the death of God, as Nietzsche termed it, um, is a world where it can lead to two extremes. One extreme is fundamentalism, when you're grabbing onto something just to give you meaning and purpose and closure and order and structure. 
And that's really where fundamentalism lies. Um, and, the other, and the other one is, is to have basically to, to individualism or nihilism, for want of a better word. Um, and those really are the two extremes that most people kind of veer towards. And the question I, I would like us to address today is, does Judaism offer us an alternative to these two solutions to the world in which we live in? And what kind of Judaism can we offer to our youth that will, ad will address this challenge that we're kind of living in at the moment? Um, I think we'll begin with Rabbi Greenberg and move to Rabbi Kaddos. Okay. Many Orthodox Jews, and not just Orthodox Jews, but traditional people, conservative people, small, small c, um, are very rattled, very threatened by post-modernity because the image is post-modernity anything goes. Modernity had standards, you had, you had critical other approaches <laughs> to tradition, nevertheless they kind of, there were standards and particularly reason and science and were established kind of as authority structures and therefore there were of course also religious authority structures and somehow post-modernity saying everybody's right, there's no dominant narrative, there's no uh, absolute standards, and so people are very rattled. Now, part of it is because people have confused orthodoxy, and I'll, I'll make this throwaway comment, we'll come back to it later maybe, which is that people think orthodoxy means that there's no change. That's what it stands for. Now, it's, that's what Haredi orthodoxy stands for, and I understand why people want to use this language, because their great fear is that in change we'll drop all these precious and valuable and divine commandments and practices and traditions. But I would argue that, that that's the wrong definition of orthodoxy. It's not that there's no change, as I said in the first answer, there are lots of changes historically, major changes. But, but the, the, what orthodoxy represents is that I bring the whole tradition with me that I am part of a brief that started at Sinai and is not finished, will not be finished until the world is perfected, and therefore I never dump the past or say it's irrelevant. In fact, being Orthodox is a commitment not only to bring the whole tradition with me, but also to bring the whole tradition, meaning learning the breadth and the depth of the tradition that informs me. But that includes a tradition that sometimes no longer practice, or in the case, for example, the classic case of Ben Soramora, the Gemara says, uh, putting a teenage child to, to death for disobeying the parents, never, never happened, never will happen. So again, that's a pretty powerful statement. So what's the point of taking this with us in the Torah? The answer is, but you can learn even from the things we don't practice. As I said, we thank God we don't practice selling women anymore. But the fact is you can learn from the process of abolishment of the inequality, from the process of improving the status. You can learn that, how one goes about improving and correcting the world. So, so I start with that. We represent the whole tradition and the whole tradition bringing with me. Even if I don't practice it, I learn from it, I listen to it, I pay attention, I take it seriously. That's what orthodoxy should represent. Now come back to the post-modernity. So my point is, we shouldn't be paralyzed or frightened at the thought we're living in a culture where there are many changes going on or where there are many multiple sources of authority. Again, to put it very simply, what is happening, I think, in fact, healthy, and I think it's what God wants. Much of the language of absolute, this is the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and the other side has nothing, no value, no judgment, no content, no positive, 
It's because we lived in our own bubbles, and that Jews lived in their little bubble, and Christians in their bubble, and Islam in there, and they all have the same idea. We have the whole truth, and the other side, they're garnished. They're, they're terrible. They're inferior. And of course, in the case of the Jews, it was particularly problematic. They were the majority. They were beating, persecuting, abusing us. So one of the best ways of handling it was to say their religion is junk. It's about Azura, it's worse, it's idolatry, and you don't take it seriously. You don't have to worry about it. Well, that age is over. And believe me, if it's hard for us, it's a crisis for Christianity and Islam and for the other religions just as much, if not more. Because suddenly, for the first time in your life, in my life, that was my experience in America. I woke, and suddenly, particularly when I went away to college, for the first time in my life, they weren't going. They were smart, intelligent. I always thought that if you, you know, the Jews are the smartest people in the world. It was a very, very important, sobering experience to go to Harvard and realize that a lot of hotshot Gentiles, <laughs> and maybe a lot smarter than you think you are. You know, so it was, it was an important, it was a very important lesson. And suddenly they weren't Goyim. They were human beings, and many of them had strong ethical and human values, many of them had strong... I mean, one, so my point is, we're all having that experience. You see, it's very shocking for an evangelical, his daughter comes home from university and says, I met this nice Jewish boy. He's so nice, he's smart, you know, he's clever, he's, he's funny, he's good, he doesn't drink. I mean, it's very hard. Schwartz is not an evangelical parent, suddenly, you know, God forbid, she might want to marry a Jew. You know, it, it gets you... So all I'm saying is, I think Hashem is really putting us in a situation where those kind of claims of superiority, those stereotypes of degradation and dismissal of the other side are no longer viable. Because you have living, we live side by side, through the media you meet the other side and all their beauty and all their power. And that's transformative in my way in a good way. So now you discover, if the only reason you were orthodox or religious was because the claim are worse, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So my point is, but then I think what this is really about is the end of the absolute claim brings us not to relativism, which is what many people then choose. Once I decide I don't have the whole truth and nothing but the truth and everybody else has nothing, so they become relativists. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, you don't want question. No, that's the danger of post-modernity. But the strength is I readjust and I realize this is my strength this is my message that are really meaningful. This is what I really not only believe in, but I find it nurturing and exciting and moving to guide my life and to treat people properly. And frankly, this part was is a stereotype, and I'm going to have to put it aside. This was a degradation, and I'm going to have to correct it. And you know what? I suddenly discovered that there are multiple... I always joke about it, but I said, you know, my, my original conception was that Jewish people is going to achieve this perfection of the world. We're going to lift up the whole world. Then one day I said, 14 million people are going to lift this whole world. We're going to get a hernia here. I mean, this, is, this is impossible, right? So one of the most revolutionary things that happened in my life, after the show, after I encountered the show, my wife and I decided we're going to join the Jewish-Christian dialogue. And frankly, I joined it because I felt Christians were a source of a lot of the hostility and a lot of the terrible stereotypes of Jews that Hitler exploited to kill us. So we joined the dialogue not to be nice and not to have a friendly conversation. We joined to say, stop doing it. 
my children and my grandchildren will be in danger, so I want you to stop teaching hatred about Jews. Stop teaching stereotypes about Jewish being a soulless religion with no, you know, all law with no spirit. That's how I joined. But you know what happened? I was very shocked. When I joined, I discovered these other people, these Christians, they were more upset about it than I was. And they were more determined to end Christianity as a source of hatred. They really wanted it to be a religion of love. I always didn't make fun of it. We want the religion of love because it wasn't love to us. It was hate us. It was persecuted, right? They were determined to do tshuva. They were more critical of Christianity than I was. And one morning I woke up and I said to myself, you know something? These people are profoundly religious. I used to make fun of Christianity. Christianity is unreasonable as Judaism is a religious reason. And what's my example? I was the privilege of it. A rabbi can get married, a rabbi can have sex, a rabbi can have children, can have a family. That's human, that's menschlich, that's responsible. And Catholicism, you've got to be celibate. So it's like an unreasonable religion making super demands that are really unfair and one-sided and distorted. That was the way I sort of categorized Christianity, put it down. Then I'll tell you what happened. In the course of dialogue, I ended up in Sri Lanka in a world conference of churches meeting other religions. During the break, they take me, they take all of us, f during the break to visit a village. This is a village for brain-damaged children. It's about 30 miles out of the capital city. In the middle of God-forsaken, God knows where, they take us to this village of children who are brain-damaged. And I discover, who are the people taking care of these children? It's a group of Norwegians, no less. The head of the group, was the Walter Cronkite, if you already remember, he was the main anchor of the main television program in Norway. He was a celebrity, famous, rich, but he's a Christian. And he woke up someday and said, I have to follow Jesus. What can I do to follow Jesus? How can I carry the cross? He went to a place where the most God-forsaken, these, these kids are so poor in Sri Lanka then, that what happened to brain-damaged children? The parents abandoned them. They died. They hungered. They died. So they created a village to take care of them. Now I come to this village. For 24 hours they sit and they take care of these kids. And I'm going through and I see, what's your reward for cleaning up when he messes his bed and he soils his clothes? What's your reward for, if you're lucky, at the end of 12 hours, the kid says, uh, or something like that. <coughs> Something hit me. You know, would I, I'm making fun of its religion that it's unreasonable, makes unreasonable demands. I said, would I have ever said to my Balabatim, go off to Sri Lanka and give up your life of fame and celebrity and wealth and comfort and take care of brain-damaged children who nobody else wants have anything to do with? The answer is I wouldn't have dared. First of all, they'd fire me, because I'm <laughs> number one. But it, I, it would strike me as unreasonable. So I'm not here to make the Judaism into an unreasonable religion, but it dawned upon me I should drop the stereotype and realize they have certain strengths that we don't have, like we have strengths that they don't have. And maybe we can learn from them in terms of sometimes self-sacrifice without going as far or one-sided or distorted. So that's my point. In post-modernity, I think we have the opportunity to learn the strengths of the other side. We have the opportunity, and they say, what happens to authority? And the answer is very obvious. Preach it. I don't accept the Shorotivism. 
I say, and this is based on my tradition and my experience, I say do not kill, I say do not steal, I say respect and tzermelokim, these are all things, and I, I, and I believe that God is with me and God is asking me to do these things. So it starts, the authority starts by saying, and not the false claim, it came from God and you have no right to argue, or came from God, therefore we don't let anybody say anything against this because we'll suppress you in the name of religion. The answer is no. The answer is they'll speak and they'll say, but say it. You have a right to say it. That's the power of post-modernity. You can say your thing, number one. Number two, more important. So who are they going to listen to? So that's my answer. Show it. Live it. Experience it. Or show me a community that really, because it's religious and it follows God, takes care of people more, is more loving, is more responsible, is more, is more compassionate, is more understanding, is more helpful. If you do that, I wouldn't worry about it. You'll disappear. You'll be undermined. That is the most powerful thing. On the other hand, if it turns out that, in fact, you're irresponsible or you don't care or you're harsh or you're cruel, so then the Torah is harsh and cruel. And that's what people will say. They're not going to follow it. So my main point is post-modernity, instead of being afraid of it, we should welcome it as an opportunity. And I think Hashem is asking us to take opportunity to be religious, not because of false or superiority, arrogant attitudes to other people, but out of the relationship of love to Hashem, out of, out of feeling the life and the value of living a rich family life, a rich community life, which is what the Torah and Halakha are giving me. And for that alone, I'm happy to choose it, not because there were no alternative choices, but because it was so exciting. And you know what? It has faults, and I can improve that, and part of the improvement is from the other side. So I'm saying that post-modernity is an opportunity. I leave with one other thought. Modernity... And Rabbi Kriban, I'm going to stop sorry. you. Okay, stop. Keep the thoughts. We're going to... I'm just going to say one sentence. There's a sentence you write in one of your articles, which I'll never forget. You say, and I will conclude with that and come back to it afterwards, and we'll ask my professor. You say, after the Holocaust, if I remember rightly, I don't know if I'm quoting exactly, it doesn't matter if you're conservative or orthodox or reform. It matters if you're embarrassed. Why? Where you come from. So it doesn't matter if you're orthodox or reform, as long as you're ashamed of it. Ashamed of it. That's exactly right. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to, are we going to move on to Rabbi Cardoz? I'm going to ask him to give a brief response, and he'll be the first one to reply to the third question on the halakha. Why are the people only annoyed with me and not with him? <laughs> Because he says it's incremental, not revolutionary. <laughs> <coughs> Very short, because you're much more dangerous because they're afraid that people listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> I see the Jewish tradition, and that relates to your question, in short, as a kind of emergency measurement. The Torah doesn't start with Jews, it starts with mankind, with Gentiles. Adam and Chava, Noah, no one of them was Jewish. When does the first Jew appear, Avram Avinu? When things went out of hand. The moment we hear about the Mabul, about the flood of Noah, and later the Torah Flaka, the Tower of Babel, then suddenly the first Jew appears. Why is that? Because at that moment the world went off the derg. And 
God now chooses, it seems, this Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, us, and say to us, says to us, you know, now that my world is not doing well, I need somebody to rescue it, basically to find a way back to where I want it to be. And therefore, I also believe that on the other end of this bridge, let's say, the bridge somehow making sure that the world does get back to the days before Noah and before the Dorhaflaka, that that is to become what we call the Messianic days. Where probably, it is unclear from the sources, and there are also contradictory sources here, we no longer will hear about the Jewish people and its purpose as we know it now. Because it is only the Jews are necessary as long as things are not back in order yet. The ones that all of it is in order, and the concept of Tzillam and Opim really has grown to the point where Ravitz wants it to go, there is no need anymore for Jews. There is still a need for Jewish values. But the carrier of that, the Jewish people, are probably no longer necessary. And I'm going to say something here where I really probably get into trouble. It may quite well be that the whole Matan Torah, which was given off to us, was only for that purpose. In other words, to help us out to rescue the world as an emergency measurement till things go better again. And therefore there's a lot of discussion in the Talmud about what is going to be with all the mitzvot and with all the commandments in the Messianic age. And there is definitely a very clear opinion which says that many of these mitzvot will no longer be necessary and therefore they will disappear. This in itself I think is a revolutionary concept because we don't see ourselves as we are the only ones and therefore the world started with Jews and it needs to end with the Jews. No, we are just thrown in the middle of the Balagan which was created since the days of Noah and somehow through the mitzvot, through our mission, through being an Amhanifhar and people who have to be an example to the world, slowly but surely, halavai, the world will be pulled back into that condition of Tzelom Elohim as it was before Noah and before the Dur HaFlaka. Now this has all sorts of incredible implications, but I want to uh, make you aware of a very famous statement by the Shlom, that was uh, the great Rabbi Yeshaya Horowitz, one of the great Kabbalists of his days, who writes something which I don't think any Orthodox Jew today would go along with, but he does write it. He says, in the prophet, it says clearly, through my flesh, I will perceive God. And Rav Horowitz there, the Shlom there says, because through, and I translate him from Hebrew, because through the image of man, having been created in the image of God, one can perceive God's will. Meaning to say, that if we really would be ourselves, the Torah would speak from our heart and no longer as an external thing which came to us and was perhaps forced onto us. 
No, we carry that Torahis in ourselves. But since in earlier days they did away with that part of their Tzelom Elohim, the Torah had to come in, step in, rescue, so that these values would not be lost, with the ultimate goal that one day we will get back to that level that we don't need anymore the Torah Shebichtaf, the written Torah as it is. Not because we deny that it was not given at Sinai. We believe it was given at Sinai. The question only is, was it a Lachatechila or was it a B'di'evet? And there are therefore clear observations made by Chazal, by the rabbis, Earlier and later, we'd say it was a bit it was a necessity at the time, and one day we hopefully will be so great and so developed morally and religiously that it is from the flesh that I, for my own flesh, that I will somehow understand and I will perceive, let's say, what God really wants from us. Which, by the way, is a very interesting thing. Because the question which has been asked by one of the great Hasidic rabbis not so long ago by the name of the Meha Shiloach, and I'm sure you've heard of him because he has become quite famous in our days, he makes this incredible point and asks the following question. What happens in a case where somebody has a divine illumination, where he is being told to do something which is not in accordance to the halacha? But he has heard the voice of God without going into what he actually means by that. And you should do this different from what the requirements of the Torah are. The very fact that he asks that question is interesting and he seems to answer, you will have to listen to it. Because the Torah was given for the sum total of mankind or the sum total of the Jewish people. But it may quite well be that among us there are people who hear the voice of God from within, which may be different from what the halakha requires, and that in itself is a position within Orthodox Judaism, at least in according to the Meha Shiloh, which is taking things very far, but it's also at the same time incredibly interesting. Now I add one point to this to come back to what Ravid said, and that is this. I also believe that modernity is not at all something we should be afraid of. We should make use of it. Should it needs to be moved in a certain direction and we have to direct it, we have to make sure that it doesn't get out of hand. But why to be afraid of that? This is also, by the way, the reason why I believe what some people sometimes say that modern orthodoxy is a compromise. I don't at all believe in that. Modern orthodoxy may quite well be the way, not that I don't have my critique on the modern orthodox community today, but not because of the fact that it may quite well be that the modern days in which we live, even the nihilism which is coming about at this very moment, are only challenges to us to go deeper into the Torah and to understand what it really wants from us. Since when do I have to be afraid of anything of that? All what I need to do is to know a lot of Torah and to know how to direct it. But to be afraid, which has become one of the biggest problems in orthodoxy today, which is living by fear, and we have created over the last 2000 years what I call a defensive halakha, holding the goyim outside, this is over. Like Rabbi just said, this is especially over now that we are back in the land of Israel. 
Just as we have a strong army today, and we can not only have to defend ourselves, but sometimes we have to go out into war, uh, to war, so we will have sometimes to do with the halakha as well. And it is completely within the spirit of the halakha <coughs> to be able to do that. And it has got nothing to do with walking away from the Jewish tradition or making it ourselves easier. It probably will make us ourselves only more difficult, but more authentic. And that, to me, is incredibly important. Okay, thank you very much. I know I personally have a lot of questions and I'm sure there's a lot of people with a lot of questions out there. Um, and we will come to your questions, so if you want to remember them, write them down and we will come um, and take a few questions at the end. Um, I want to move now to both of you have spoken about halakha and have mentioned its shortcomings as well as obviously um, the backbone that it is to orthodoxy. Um, but I want to ask a question, also kind of moving to this, perhaps what the youth addressed today, and that's the question of, you know, why should we keep halakha bichlal? If both of what you are saying is correct, okay, in, in your varying ways, why should I, or we could ask, why should an archaic, almost maybe perhaps even redundant system, what import does it still hold for us today? And I think really um, this is an important question for both of you who have suggested that it's evolutionary or even suggested now perhaps we should listen to our inner moral voice or something else that may be dictating the way in which we behave. Um, you know, why can't we just listen to our moral bearings or social justice or anything else? Why is halakha still, because I know for both of you it is very much central, why is it, does it still hold so much weight or should it hold so much weight? Um, in orthodoxy today. Um, we'll begin with Rabbi Kardoza. I believe that halakha is definitely indispensable at this hour. That is to say, as long as we are not yet living up to the standards which we discussed before, we need a particular kind of system to help us to get there. And that is to me the most important part of what halakha has to offer us. It is a means not an end goal. It is a means to get somewhere that perhaps one day I can indeed listen to my inner voice, which is the very voice of that very Torah which was given to us at Matan Torah a few thousand years ago. At the moment, I don't believe that we can do without it in any way because we are still very far removed from the ideals and from, let's say, the very ideologies which the Torah happens to teach us. But it must happen, like I've said before, in a way that it is evolutionary, that the sages of Israel, as you clearly see in the Talmud, constantly are busy with the Torah to reframe it and to even update it. It is a dangerous word to use here, but I think that is basically what is happening. Because God seems to come to the Jewish people, especially to the sages, and said, listen here, I will lay the foundations of the Torah. That is what I gave you at Sinai. Yes, the Torah lo bashamaimi. The Torah is no longer in heaven. Now it is in your hands to develop it. We are both together the creators of the Torah. I'm not the only one. I just laid the foundations. And the very fact that now you have the opportunity to do that, and even sometimes to reject some of my 
meets what, like the Ben Sore or More and other cases, and perhaps even the Mamser uh, issue and so on, that is something which is now in your hands because you are big enough to be able to do that. And that's the reasons why, to use that typical Jewish word, the Chachamim, the sages, had the good spa to push certain mitzvot aside. And if you would ask him, how do you dare to do that? Then they would say, there's nothing to do with daring. That is exactly what we are asked to do. We were given this text into our hands, and now we are also being told, work on it, develop it. And if we find something there which a long time ago may have been of great importance, like slavery, like the issue of uh, Korbanot, like the Rambam says, the issue of the sacrifices. Okay, we have to go through that stage till we outlive it. And we, the sages of Israel, will have to make sure that one day that will happen. So don't come back to me and say, why I want to do away with the Korbanot. No, Maimonides clearly says, the Rambam doesn't agree, but Maimonides clearly says over here, this is because the Torah was given at a certain moment in history. It is an historical text. It is given by God to the Jewish people a few thousand years ago in accordance to what at that time was available to be able to make the world a little bit of a better place. And the sages then afterwards said, if that's what it is, then we need in the next generation to move even more forward and the next generation after that as well. God could obviously have said the following, you know what, when we need a new Torah, I will give it. In another 500 years after Matan Torah, I will give you a new one because the situation is different than from what it was 500 years ago. And the interesting thing is that God did not do that. And the reason why he did not do that, he said, because man, you can do it yourself. You, the sages, obviously, the people who know what they're speaking about, you can do it yourself. I rely on you. And therefore, it will develop and it has to develop. That was my whole intention. So therefore, there is this need for halakha as the foundation, as also the very point of departure by which it needs to develop. At the moment, we are not yet in a situation where we can do away with it, because it probably will create tohu babohu instead that we have some kind of framework to work from. But if we are going to sanctify the framework as stagnant, we are basically blowing the whole place up, and that is what I'm afraid is happening today in certain orthodox circles. Thank you very much, Rabbi Greenberg. Well, first, thank you again for reminding all of us. The point that I said before about breed is the method, the covenant, it's a partnership. And yes, so the halakha is a partnership between Hashem and B'nai Israel, and that means the further development is our role as partners, Rabbi, um, Rabbi Salvechi has a man this quote that Ishalacha receives the Torah from Sinai as a shutav, as a partner of the Master Rishi. And just as we're supposed to complete and perfect the world, so we're supposed to complete and perfect the, the halacha and its goals. Having said that, I just want to add this point. First of all, I start by saying, why keep halacha? The answer is everybody I know, or most everybody I know, looking for guidance how to live. We, there, are, there are constant choices, constant challenges, constant problems, constant multiple choice 
varieties before us, and I think most people I know are interested in looking for gardens. So it's not that they'll automatically keep it, and I think the day, as I said, when you can get up and say, well, God gave this, and no, you can't ask questions, uh, is over. But simply people say, and that's the strength of modern, postmodern too. People say, I'll listen. If you can give me something that makes sense, that can guide me, that can help me, I'm certainly interested. I start with that. Now, secondly, what's halakha? So my answer is, halakha is a, it's not a legal system. It's the cumulative wisdom and ways of living and commandments and practices and analogies and so on for 3,000 years. So you start with the fact, simply, you're, you're, we're all looking for models. We're looking for guidance. And the answer is, here you have a treasure house of models and of guidance and of practices. And I find most people, at least, are willing to listen. I start with that. Third comment. What is halakha? What's, I think, what's the core idea behind halakha? I would say the core idea literally is that every act of life is not neutral. I said before that the Jewish tree has a dream of making the world perfect. And it starts in the real world, as you heard just now, and in the real world, it's a stretch. And therefore, what the halakha really is, is starting with What's not necessarily the ideal or the perfect comment, what's the best possible at this moment? I gave those examples before of slavery and women. There are hundreds of such examples. The halakha, in many cases, does not give you the ideal. It gives you the best possible at the present time. That's very important, and it's very constructive, as you just heard. But again, that means if the situation changes, if the opportunity is different, you can, you're supposed to. You know, you can. You're supposed to move it to the next level. We're always trying to get to that final messianic level. Last comment, each moment of life, that I think is the core idea Margaret, in my book anyway. Literally, each moment of life is not neutral. And each moment of life is a choice. It's a choice between life and death. That's what people, that's Bachar Tebuchayim. That's the main idea of the Torah at least as Moshe summarizes it, right? Moshe, when he summarizes the whole Torah, it's his last speech. He says, what did I do at Sinai or today? I've put before you life and good, Rambam points this out, life and good are linked together, and I've put before you death and evil. So Rambam says very simply, that means that every good act is an act of life. And every bad act is a life of death. They have to figure out how that works and what's going on. So, Halacha says, don't just do this thing unthinkingly. Whatever it is you're about to do, stop and ask yourself, where's the element of life, where's the element of death, and choose life. Now, well, let me give you an example. Eat. You have to eat. If they're right there, right there. If you don't eat, you've chosen death, you're going to die. So we eat because we choose to live. Now the question becomes, in choosing what I'm about to eat, can I make that in some way a maximization of life? That's what the kashrut is about. What kashrut really says is that if you want to choose life and you want to eat, then ideally you shouldn't kill an animal. Right? According to halakha, the ideal is Vegetarianism. It says very clearly in the Garden of Eden and in the beginning of the Torah that we, in fact, even animals are supposed to be vegetarian. 
Now, then the halakha says, that's the ideal. Now, what about the real world? In the real world, frankly, A, you need the protein. B, people have power and vengeance, and you can exercise that. So the answer halakha gives is, and this is after the flood, it's a compromise. People can't yet live by the perfect standard, live by the next best standard, which is modified vegetarianism, which is kashrut. What is modified vegetarianism? If you want to eat vegetables, every vegetable is kosher. If you want to eat minerals, every mineral is kosher. Ah, you want to eat living things? Well, that should do it with restrictions. That's the first step toward the final perfection. What's the restriction? So again, if it's a lower form of development, life, fish, we have one restriction, species. You can't eat certain species. By the way, in general, you can eat only a few species in general, because we want to restrict. In any event, you want to eat birds, that's the next highest level of life. Then in addition to restricting species, we restrict the way you kill it. You can't kill it. You have to kill it swiftly, painlessly, otherwise known as shkita. You want to eat a high level of life animals, we give even more restrictions. Species, you can't eat, you don't eat very few species. You have to shecht it so it dies painlessly and swiftly. And you can't prepare it with milk and meat. Why not? Well, I would suggest because milk is, mother's milk is the milk of life. And meat is the meat of death. And therefore, you're not supposed to mix them or even connect. So what's the point? By choosing not to eat casually, but to think about it, your next meal reflects your choice of giving life priority. Now, let me apply that further. We're not finished, Allah. We're living in the 20th, first century. We have to keep developing it. So what, what's the next choice? In addition to that, how about, well, how do they prepare the animals? Do they treat them properly or mistreat them? In which case, I won't eat it. How about if it's an overfished species? Or even a better choice, life or death? The next choose I, food will I choose. What will I choose? Will I choose Ben and Jerry's haagen double ice cream sundae with whipped cream, which when I eat it will shoot my heart full of cholesterol and fat and kill me. It'll cause me overweight. Or will I choose to eat celery? <laughs> Meaning, will I choose life? Will I Maybe, maybe I choose death in a second. No, no. no but seriously. My point is we're not finished with halakha. In fact, that's my main point. Halakha is constantly developing in every area. The halakha, how about carbon footprint? How about avoiding pollution? How about, I mean, in other words, the halakha is saying, the next word I speak, will it be a word of life, respect, encouragement, telling somebody, what they could do, giving them compassion and healing? Or is the next word critical, nasty, belittling, telling you're incompetent or you can't do it? So the next word can be a word of life or a word of death. What's Lashem Hara? I'm telling the truth, I know, but it's a word of death because you're not saying what's what good, what's possible. You're saying what drags you down, what knocks you down. So my point is that's the halakha. It's far from being finished, I would argue, it's a guide to what everybody wants to do. The next time I breathe, what kind of <coughs> breathing, what kind of exercise? Will I sit like a couch potato? Will I get up and exercise? And the answer is that's the halakha that's unfolding before our very eyes. 
And that is exactly the point I want to find it, that halacha is our guide to moving from the present to the future by choosing life every step of the way. Okay. By the way, where it doesn't, that's where the change, that's what I've, that's where I'm, Natan is trying to tell us, right? Where the halakha is telling us a word of hatred, or that the women are not equal, or the halakha is telling us that you should treat gay people like they're deviants and, and drive, them, drive them to suicide. That's the word of death. It's taking the halakha, which is a sabachayim, a medicine, and turn to death. And that's the unfinished job of our community. That's the unfinished job of the halakha of perfectionism, which is to move and to choose and to apply it for life. And ultimately, I think what Rabbi Kordoza said, the idea that halakha eventually will become, we won't need it anymore, is zman moshiach, so to speak, when it's achieved everything it needs to achieve. So instead of being in disagreement between these two things, I think we found a lot in common between the two of them, and they even complement each other's thinking. I think we're going to leave the final question, unless... Can I add something? Yeah, of course, with pleasure. She's a nice girl. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to use this? Uh, no, I'll take this. I, I just want to add here the following, and that is that, first of all, uh, Ravitz is very right about something which most Orthodox Jews don't understand. Halakha is not an ideal in the sense that it answers all the questions in a way that it is completely fine and everything is under control. There is no such thing in this world. Uh, Isaiah Berlin, one of the great British-Russian philosophers, writing about morality, made uh, the following point. Everything in this world, and it is also true about Torah, but it's also deal true about uh, other uh, legal systems, everything is depending on what he calls a trade-off. A trade-off means to say, every judge is constantly confronted with that, how much justice shall I apply and how much mercy shall I apply? These two don't go together. There's no way how you can only find justice and not at the same time create a lot of trouble. And or only go for Rachmanut and mercy and not create a lot of trouble. So what does the judge need to do? And I think that is exactly what is happening in the halakha. It tries to find a trade of a compromise between both different opposing forces, each one in themselves have a lot to say for themselves, but ultimately somewhere they're going to clash. And therefore you find in the Gemara itself the differences of opinion. Elu elu divrei elokim chayim. Those and these and those are the words of the living God when Abai and Ravah don't agree, when Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel don't agree. Not because one is wrong and the other one is right, but there is a moment when you have to decide. William James, the famous uh, American philosopher and psychologist, used to say, not to make a decision is also a decision. You have to decide. So at a certain moment, Ghazal had to come and say, we decide like this. We decide mainly in according to Beit Hillel. Does that mean that Beit Shammai is wrong? No. For, for the moment, we will indeed decide in according to Beit Hillel. And the Gemara also says that in the days of the Mashiach, we'll probably decide in according to the Beit, Beit Shammai. <laughs> Why is that? Because different values will play a different role at different moments in the history of man. And we have to realize one more thing about Halakha, and that is this. I also believe 
dat halacha is there to teach us how to live in amazement. One of the biggest problems of our society today is that everything is taken for granted. When I look to my own children who are born here in Israel, they take the state of Israel for granted. I can't hold that against them because that's what they live in. I don't. Why not? I was born in Goetzlaarnes, in a totally secular society and in a secular family. And when I come here or when I approach the Jewish tradition, what do I see there? I see there that there is something going on which in many ways makes me to be amazed. When I say a bracha in the morning or I take an apple in my hand and I say, what am I saying there? What I'm saying there is a statement of amazement. You know what the, tra the English translation of Baruch Hashem is? Wow! <laughs> Because that is really what it is. And I think that if you look carefully throughout the whole of Hal the halachic system, you will constantly see it is busy to stop us for a moment and to say, do you know what you're doing? You're opening up a fridge on Shabbat? You take it for granted like that? In the olden days there was a question about if you can or you cannot open a fridge on Shabbat or use an electric light or whatever it is. Be amazed. Stand in amazement, what, what Heschel calls radical amazement. Which goes much further than what I have to say about it. The biggest problem I think very often is that we have created for our children, our orthodox children, what I call a Coca-Cola light Judaism. Or a Coca-Cola light halacha. Everything has to be easy. Everything has to be worked out. I just go to my rabbi, ask the question. I don't have to think about what it means, what its purpose is. Why do we do the things we do? I tell you, I meet constantly Bachore Yeshiva, and I ask them, how long have you learned in Yeshiva? Five years, six years. How many Masechtot have you learned? Oh, Baba Kama, Baba Basta, Sanhedrin, and so on. Okay, tell me one thing, if you have learned so many years, one thing. If a non-religious Jew or a, non or a Gentile comes to you and asks you the question, why are you religious? What would you answer? My dear friends, 99.9% of all the people I've asked do not know the answer to that question. <laughs> and then I ask, and you went through most of the Gemara and you can't explain what it is, why you are religious? So I went to the Rosh Hashimot and I asked the Rosh Hashimot, how is it possible that you educate people like that? And the Rosh Hashimot were completely taken back by it because they also didn't know. Now I know why they're angry. But I think this is a very important purpose of the halacha. It must make us to be and stand in amazement. Okay, thank you. many different topics, we've covered many different areas, there's one particular question we didn't get to in the end, but we'll leave something for next time. Um, I know that both Rabbi Cardoza and Rabbi Greenberg have enlightened us all with many, many different ideas and many things I think to think about. I'm sure there's many questions out there. Um, I'm going to take, I think, well, we'll start, we'll start with one. Yeah. And we'll move on. Um, first of all, thank you very much to both of you. I think it was the most enlightening evening at Eastern. There's a pasuk that we repeat the most according to Chotat Filah every day in every day of the year. Shabbat, Yom Kippur. 
We say it twice after every Amidah. We don't notice, many people don't notice, and I would like to know your opinion about it. I'm talking of Tehillim Yudet, Psalms 19, where it says, in Hebrew, Tehillu le'ratzoni re'ipi ve'higyon ribi le'fanecha Hashem tzuri ve'goranim. In English, for those who don't understand, it's may the prayers, may the words of my mouth and the logic of my heart be accepted <coughs> before you. The words of my mouth seems to be logical because it follows the first pasuk before uh, at the beginning of the Amida, where it says, Hashem Hashem open my lips and my mouth will sing your praises. So one is linked to the other. Very logical. The second part of it, and the, and the logic of my heart, seems to be a very meaningful prayer, also that it's repeated the most than any other prayer, six times a day on a, on a young hold. And it seems to strengthen what you said here, that the alaha and the ways we are told have the barrier of our logic and our inner decisions. Hashem made us in His image. And if somebody tells us, somebody tells us, do this and we do it, maybe in Beidin Shilmala they will ask us, why did you do it? Because this and this gentleman told me to. So the, the next question will be, don't you have second of your own to decide what to do? Can I just ask you to uh, yes, get so to the question? Yes, <laughs> I, would, I would be very happy if you could comment a few words about it. Okay, is there a specific question or just a comment on the that? The question is the meaning of the you especially the logic of my heart. Okay, we're going to ask one, who would you like to address it to? Do the same. Um, who would like to address? One of you want to answer that? If I could, there's <laughs> Well, I could speak for hours about this. <laughs> I would say that to me these uh, opening statements and the closing statements of the Amidah uh, make me aware about one thing uh, and that is that I am altogether able to speak and make sense. Words are really sounds and they do not have to mean anything because a sound doesn't mean anything and to our total surprise, amazement, they do mean something. If you have read Ludwig Wittgenstein, his famous work on language, then you realize suddenly that what we are doing here at this very hour by speaking is completely miraculous. So before I start to speak to God in the most inner form at the beginning of the Amidah of the Shmonesri, I say to God, I'm completely surprised that I can speak to you. And more than that, also that I am allowed to have the good spa to tell you how great you are. Why? Because it could quite well be that you will tell me, Cardozo, I don't need you to tell me how great I am. <laughs> yes, but the fact that I am allowed to do that, and that's more for me than for God, is in itself a miraculous situation, and that is, first of all, besides many things, the meaning of the beginning statement and the end statement. 
I, I would just, just add really one comment, which is that it's one of the potential living halachic life. The strength of it is the familiarity, the regularity, David all the time, the same verse. It's a, it's a very reassuring and very encompassing we're living. The tension of that is it slip into, you know, rote, you slip into empty words, you slip into habits that you're not completely unaware of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Now, it may be comforting, but it certainly doesn't have the depth. What those verses are trying to say is remind you that the, whole, the goal is prayer is not just to, you know, chop out these words, but to make a connection to Hashem, to really speak from the heart, to pour out your feelings. So I would say those are a good example of how you live in the tension of halachic living, which is, again, if you're human, and I certainly fall, I hope I fall into that category, meaning you do get into habits and you do these things without thinking. But at least once in a while, you try to remind yourself to recapture the connection to God and the sense of what you're doing. Thank you for the question. The last question wait, I wait, 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 just, 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 I just happened to read this week something most remarkable, and that is that I don't remember who it was. A Hasidic rabbi once did not come for Yom Kippur to shul, and they looked for him and they found him outside. And they said, why are you not coming to Yom Kippur to show and to say the words which we need to say? And he answered is, I'm still so overwhelmed by the words which I spoke on Rosh Hashanah that I can't say anything anymore. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, I'm going to try to focus the question. Um, in Israel today, right, it's, it's a miracle that we're here from Israel and Israel. Israel. Um, and part of being in power is that we have minorities and other people who are under our political control. And no matter how, no matter where we are politically, if we really look into what's happening, certain things in Yerushalayim, specifically, you can say there are um, basic civil rights of, of Palestinian minorities in the city that aren't respected, and a lot, and often in the name of Torah and Judaism. And um, there isn't so there there isn't a really strong Jewish voice that reflects the values of Salomon came that that you were speaking about in respect to non-Jews in Israel and Chutzlar. It's it's a very different reality here because of politics. Some of the values that are reflected in modern Orthodox Judaism in America is not reflected here. Um, and I wanted to hear to hear how you would relate to that. Well, yeah, the answer is personally, uh, it, it's one of the unmet challenges that Rabbi Cardoso referred to earlier. How do you develop a halakha and a Judaism that is applicable and living and guiding in a democratic contemporary state? Uh, we're way behind on that issue. It's been very slow. And the bulk of the official rabbinate is really connected to a Judaism that's undemocratic, if not hostile to democracy and many levels and many ways. So it's a major problem and I'm very disappointed personally that so much of the religious Zionist political parties have, you know, I mean, they were, Rafi Peretz ready to make a deal with Otsmi Hudid, which is out and out racist and out and out hateful, violent terrorist, a Jewish terrorist. And so I'm very disappointed personally, emotionally. Now having said that, that's how I say, we have an unmet job 
Having said that, I just want to keep the balance and remind you that Israel for 20, for 70 years has been under siege, has been denied the right to exist, is faced by enemies, many of whom would like to or be very happy to wipe us out. Given that truth, it's also true that on balance, I think the country has treated its minorities and, and even the Palestinians under very difficult circumstances with a great deal of ethical restraint and respect. Now, it's also not to deny for a moment that different groups and different uh, periods and different parties have been more or less respectful of the possibilities. Has this government maximized all the chances of making peace? No, but it, I, this, I would say, I'm, so again, my balance is, on the one hand, I'd like to see the religious community particularly get its act together and really much more fight and represent this claim that everybody said, and how you make room for that. I want to add another example of that too. Again, I think I love the fact that Israel is Jewish. I love the fact that in public it supports and observes Shabbat and Kashrut and so on and so on. It's very, very personally, very meaningful. And on the other hand, I think we have been very thoughtless and it's mostly Haredi, but we have gone along with it, modern Orthodox. Will you impose, will you restrict, will you disrespect the other people, will you, you know, force them or in the case, the worst, the worst case, of course, is the rabbinate and marriage and divorce, where you have outrageous mistreatment and disrespect, lack of understanding, lack of uh, compassion, lack of certainly respect for women and their dignity, and we impose it on them. They have no choice. It's, I think these are things where we as Orthodox Jews have a lot of self-criticism and self-reflection. So on balance, my answer is we're human, but we've done a lot of very good things, and on balance, Israel has kept its moral balance, and on balance, it has treated a very difficult situation. I mean, Justice William Brennan of the Master Supreme Court, one of the great liberal heroes of the 20th century, he visited Israel and he said, My, you know, the most striking thing that struck him was, he said, in America, when we had crises, when we were being pushed by communism, we had McCarthyism which suppressed the freedom. And when you had, in the 1920s, they had the Red Scare, communism was a threat, they took away civil liberties, etc. He said in Israel, despite the fact that they've been under siege for 70 years, there's been a steady widening of civil rights, a steady widening, even in the Arab community. Much better treated now than it was in 1948. We didn't trust them then. So all I'm saying is, if you keep this balance in one pocket that says the truth, that we have a long way to go and the religious community particularly is not doing enough for peace, for dignity, for minority rights, for, for the rights of, differ, of difference of opinion. And the other pocket should say the whole country, including the modern Orthodox, has kept a very high level of restraint, a very high level of moral responsibility, a very high level of uh, making an army that exercises war and with respect for civilians. Thank if you, you keep that balance. Thank you. Um, Yes. <clears throat> I'd like to ask a question about assimilation <clears throat> because that's always uh, seen as especially for, for people who, who have very strong Jewish values that this is a great threat. That assimilation is a great, a great threat to the Jews, especially in the United States and the reform movement and the non-religious movement. So uh, let's say you have a situation of someone who's uh, an observant Jew or keeps Shabbat, keeps Kashrut. He falls in love with a person who's not Jewish, a girl who's not Jewish. She believes in God. She doesn't want to interfere at all. With, she wants to learn from him. But she knows that 
if she doesn't convert, her children won't be Jewish, and her husband will be dead to his family. Now, uh, that's, that's one case. And then the other case is, if somebody had a reformed uh, conversion, I have friends who say, well, well, you couldn't possibly marry into any of their families because, my God, you may have a non uh, kosher conversion, and you can't trust the reform conversions at all. So they're they're like goyim, and uh, you know if you marry into that family, you may as well be dead to your parents. So the question is, what do you say to somebody like this about uh, the fact that uh, if you're if you're assimilating with someone, you're going to be dead to your family and no no longer considered a Jew, even if you believe in, in God and personally follow halakha. Okay, I don't know who wants to answer that. I'm just going to say this is the last question, and then the evening will be finished. You'll, if people need to go, of course, with pleasure. Um, but that's, thank you very much, and we're going to finish with that question. So we'll start with Rabbi Cardoza briefly, and then Rabbi Greenberg briefly. This question only becomes a question if you don't follow the Sephardi tradition. Because Sephardim, and I am one of them, have a very different approach here, which was very well established by Chacham Uziel, the first chief rabbi, Sephardi chief rabbi of the State of Israel, who has written in great length about this. And what he says is this. Anybody who wants to become Jewish is from Jewish background, but isn't halachically Jewish wants to live in this country, wants to marry a Jewish person, we should not just allow this person to convert, we should do everything to try to make him to want to convert. And even in a case where we know that he won't keep all the mitzvot afterwards, we should still do that. That was his opinion, and I'm also of that opinion. Because we could solve a lot of problems that way. We cannot allow for assimilation. But if we see that there is no other way but to allow a non-Jewish person to become Jewish, even when we are not 100% sure how much they are shomrim mitzvot, so, so it, it is. And that we have to accept like that, and that was his point of departure. The reason why this is not very much followed today by the rabbinate and so on is because Avuziel has been rejected on this particular part and because they see the Jewish tradition purely as a religious uh, tradition, as a religion. We are not just a religion, we are also a kind of people. We are a certain nationality. I don't like that word today because it is misused often, but there is a nation of Israel and there is a religion of Israel. They are in some mysterious way connected, you can't define them, but these two aspects are there. If somebody wants to become part of the Jewish people and wants to, let's say, accept some basic concepts of what the Jewish tradition is teaching us, we need to try to make this person convert. And this should be done by orthodoxy. Why? Because only orthodoxy will on the end be able to say this person is orthodox and if it is orthodox, or better, if this person is Jewish by orthodox standards, Kalba Homer is true about the conservative movement and about the reform movement. 
So I would, and I'm not the first one to call for that, it has been done before, I would definitely create a Betendien where non-Jews are able to convert even when they are not prepared to keep all the meat slot. And what is happening today quite often, I'm quite involved in this, is that these people get forced to lie in the Beidin by saying, yes, I will keep everything, when everybody knows, including the Dayanim, that they are not. That is the wrong approach. But the approach of Ravuziel is no doubt the right one, and that is the one which we should go with, and we have to convince the Rabbinate to accept that. I would separate that question into, into three very specific details. The first is, is there a higher risk of assimilation because of the openness, the, the commonality, the mutual respect, the, the new understanding of the non-Jewish people between Jews? Yes, it's a much higher level of assimilation, and that's what we're seeing in America. In particular, one of the rewards if you make Aliyah, if you come to Israel, is yes, you'll be living with a Jewish majority, a Jewish culture, a Jewish calendar, a Jewish, it's easy to keep kosher and not keep kosher in terms of buying what you buy at the supermarket. Yes, yeah, so that's one of your rewards, including the Arabs are out, or at least the outside Arabs are out to kill you, so again, you're not gonna have much intermarriage. So that's the advantage of Israel, and that's the challenge and the risk of America. My answer is, you're not gonna go back to the ghetto, and if the Torah can only live in a culture where they hate and, hate and kill us, then it's not going to have much of a future, and I don't think it deserves a future. So my answer to the first question is it rents a higher risk of assimilation, but that's our unmet challenge, to raise the level of religious life and of religious values so that people in a free society, fully exposed to the dignity and value of the other, still choose to be Jewish. That's an unfinished job that has been more accomplished in America than Israelis give credit, which brings me to my second comment. My second comment is that it's tied also to the political question. The right in, in Israel, uh, stung by the criticism on political issues, which is coming from the liberal and the non-Orthodox communities particularly, uh, is one reason why they're negative. The other is um, to justify the, the use of the government, the Haredi government, for example, the women on the wall, the use of the government powers to exclude non-Orthodox Jews and to mistreat them, which leads to backlash and anger and resentment in the diaspora, to justify what I think is an irresponsible and disgraceful policy of alienating diaspora Jews. So how do you justify that? Well, the answer is this is the current party line. The reform, they're all gonna assimilate. Only the Orthodox are gonna stay Orthodox, so we can afford to insult them because they're gonna die out anyway. I think that's, it's, A, it's not true, they're going to be heavy losses, but there's a there is an important core there that is not going to disappear, and the core that is going to disappear right now is one of the major sources of support for Israel and respect for the Jewish people, and therefore this whole line should be rejected as a stereotype fake in order to convince people not to look away while we dis dismiss or dis- American Jews. That's my second comment. The third comment about conversion is the third. Simply this. I mean, again, the answer is, and before our eyes in this country, are 400,000 Russian Jews who are here because they're Jewish, even though they're not halakhically Jewish, and they serve in the army, and these 
rabbit, it dismisses them, makes the life miserable for them, does not want to convert them. It's an outrage, it's a violation of any irresponsibility of Jewish people, and therefore my answer is, as, as Rabbi Kato suggested, we have to develop a whole different shita of conversion that in fact accepts people at a wide range of behavioral patterns, and that's part of the halacha update that we all should be working on right now, which is to turn it into a welcoming, absorbing, affirming religion, which is not afraid to take these people in, they will become much more Jewish if you do that, rather than the other way where you push them out and, and you have neither their support nor our respect. both what Rabbi Cardoza and Rabbi Greenberg have said. Wake up, be radically amazed, get in touch with your tradition, love it, choose life. learn it, choose life. <laughs> <laughs>